But now as we hear his word preached to seek him in all of his glory. We continue this Lord's Day with the series that we began a few weeks ago, having answered the question, what are terms of communion? Having answered the question, what is close communion? Now this Lord's Day and next Lord's Day, we will seek to answer the question, what is occasional hearing? I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Proverbs 19:27 Here Solomon says Cease my son to hear the instruction that causeth to err from the words of knowledge What is the harm in visiting occasionally another Christian church when we are traveling out of town? A church which does not agree with our terms of communion, a church which in fact denies some of the truths which we affirm in our subordinate standards. What's the harm in visiting occasionally such a church? As long as the church I visit, one might say, and the minister I hear affirm the fundamentals of the Christian faith, it can certainly be no great danger to my soul or to the souls of my family members to demonstrate my Christian unity with these brethren by worshiping together on the odd occasion. Well, dear ones, certain Christians may agree with us in the biblical necessity of having terms of communion. And certain Christians may even support the biblical necessity of having a close communion. But here is where the line is so often drawn for most who have come along thus far with us. Because this distinctive, more than any of our distinctives within the Puritan Reformed Church, cuts contrary to the pluralistic grain of modern Christianity. And because that is the case, I urge you to suspend your final judgment concerning this matter until you have heard the biblical case presented. Because emotions are so often stirred up and fueled by such issues as this, I also urge you to suspend all practical questions as to how this will affect you or your family members or your extended family members until you have carefully considered the objective testimony of God speaking in His Holy Word. Then, after we have considered that, we can answer together some of the more practical questions that may arise in our families in regard to occasional hearing. But before we consider our text, Proverbs 19.27, perhaps it would be helpful to define our terms. What is occasional hearing? What does the phrase refer to? Well, occasional hearing refers to the practice of occasionally attending the public acts of worship of an unfaithful church or occasionally receiving the official administrations of a minister who is a member of an unfaithful church. An unfaithful church, dear ones, or an unfaithful minister I would define this way as I believe our faithful forefathers have defined it, is one that has backslidden from the testimony of Scripture, 
And from the biblical testimony found in faithful creeds or subordinate standards, such as the Westminster Confession of Faith, or such as the Solemn League and Covenant. For you see, dear ones, a faithful or a minister of an unfaithful church, while yet connected to that unfaithful church, is to be avoided and is to be withdrawn from according to the scriptures. That's not according to my word, but as we shall see, it is according to the word of God. He is to be avoided and withdrawn from. He may have many positive and good qualities about him. We're not saying he's not a Christian. We're not saying that he's not faithful in many areas. But where he scandalously maintains and promotes doctrine, worship, and government contrary to the scripture and faithful confessional standards, he is to be avoided and withdrawn from until he repents of his unfaithfulness and until he's no longer associated with that unfaithful church. For example, Church A professes that the infant children of members of the visible church ought to be baptized. This is the position that the Puritan Reformed Church steadfastly clings to. Whereas Church B professes that the infant children of members of the visible church ought not to be baptized. They practice only and believe only in a believer's baptism. And since children at a very young age cannot profess their faith, they say that children cannot be baptized, ought not to be baptized. Now, obviously, in this illustration of this example, Church A and Church B clearly hold contrary positions to one another concerning the doctrine and practice of infant baptism. No doubt both of those positions find their way into their creeds as well, into their confessional standards as well. And so the question becomes, should members of Church A occasionally worship at Church B? Should members of the Puritan Reformed Church occasionally worship at a church that denies that infant baptism is taught in the scripture and ought to be practiced. Obviously, we could also consider the difference in the profession of churches in matters such as inspired song in corporate worship versus uninspired song in corporate worship. Or matters that relate to the use of instruments in corporate worship as opposed to those churches that say no instruments should be used in corporate worship. Or we might see differences with regard to views of Sabbath keeping. Some churches maintaining that it is God's moral commandment that is perpetual to keep the Sabbath to refrain from worldly employment and recreation on the Lord's Day. Only those deeds that are clearly of necessity and mercy are to be done versus churches that maintain that there is no longer any binding obligation to keep the Sabbath or churches that maintain a God-centered salvation versus churches that maintain a man-centered salvation. And we could go on and on and on with regard to differences that find their way into the creedal statements of these churches. But I submit to you that we expressly violate the clear teaching of Scripture in attending churches that we know to be scandalously backslidden in violation of known commandments of God in regard to doctrine, worship, government, or discipline. Although such a position is unpopular with the masses today, Faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ requires us to maintain and promote the view, the position that occasional hearing is a grievous sin against the Lord our God and against our neighbor. 
The main points to be addressed in the sermon this Lord's Day are the following. First of all, the biblical testimony against occasional hearing. Second, the historical testimony against occasional hearing. And thirdly, the practical testimony against occasional hearing. So let us consider, first of all, the biblical testimony against occasional hearing. And again, I turn to Proverbs 19.27, our text, which says, Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causeth to err from the words of knowledge. As we consider our text, we have three subpoints. The first one, let us consider a tender command given. A tender command given. Cease, my son. Although many may interpret this view against occasional hearing to be harsh, to be judgmental on our parts, to be narrow-minded, and even to be cultish. Solomon carefully couches this divine command in tender parental love. Cease, my son. The commands of God, dear ones, are not intended by God to be harsh, although they inevitably, it seems, stretch us beyond our limits, our own physical limits, our own innate and natural limits. God's commands are always doing that, doing that with us. And they certainly stretch us beyond our comfort zone. God's commandments do. For you see, dear ones, the reason that God's commandments seem harsh to us is because of our own sinful inclination to lean upon our own understanding and to gratify our own lusts and desires. That's why God's commandments seem grievous to us, such a burden to carry. However, our Father in heaven loves us. And he has given us his commandments as an expression of his love for us. Not because he hates us, not because he despises us, but because he loves us. He's given us his commandments. Dear ones, listen to the words of Moses as he explained to Israel the benefit that they were and we are to derive from God's good commandments. Moses says in Deuteronomy 6.24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God. Notice, why? For our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. Why has God given to us his commandments? For many reasons or several reasons. But one of those reasons that he has given us his commandments is because he loves us and it is for our good. That we might be protected and blessed within the covenant. The Apostle John clearly states in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God. That is, John is saying, this is an expression of our love of God, our love for God. What is that expression? That we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. God's commandments are not harsh. Jesus says, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. and My burden is light. His commandments are not grievous, therefore are good. <clears throat> Dear children of the covenant, you wee little ones, listen. You older ones, listen. The most visible expression of love 
that you can demonstrate to your, to your parents is not simply to tell your parents that you love them. That's important. But the most visible demonstration of your love for your parents is to obey them. To obey them cheerfully. To obey them willingly. To not have to be prodded and pushed. But when you are told to do something, to simply do and keep all the lawful commands that your parents give to you. That's an expression of great love to the Lord and to your parents. And just as Solomon prefaces his strong medicine with endearing, endearing terms of affection, so likewise do other prophets and apostles of Scripture speak likewise to their children in the faith. Just as Solomon speaks to his own children and by application to his children in the faith, meaning you and I, for we are his sons as well in the faith. So the apostles say, for example, in 1 John 2, 1, my little children, terms of affection, terms of love, my little children, John says, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. Before he smacks them with that you're not to sin, he draws them close to himself and says, my little children, I love you. And the reason I give you the, this command that you're not to sin is for your well-being, for your good. And this is what we as parents are to do. This is what God does with us. This is what Solomon says. Cease, my son, or my children, speaking of all of us. Dear ones, as parents with your children, always begin with tenderness and affection and only exhort as a, as a last resort to a more harsh uh, a tone when your children become obstinate and stubborn. Deal with them, though, in tenderness and affection as God does with you. Solomon's command to his son and to all his sons and daughters in the faith is comprehended in one word, cease. Whatever the content of Solomon's command to us as children in the rest of this verse, it is clear that something is to stop being done altogether. Something is not to be practiced at all. Here is not a command which allows for an occasional practice of what it, whatever is herein forbidden and prohibited. But rather, this is a permanent ceasing and desisting from such a practice. Whatever it is that follows after this command, cease. It is not allowed occasionally to be done. It is permanently to stop. The second point under our first main point is that a formal and public hearing of a certain kind of, uh, of instruction is forbidden. A formal and public hearing of a certain kind of instruction is herein forbidden. Cease, my son, note, to hear the instruction. To hear the instruction. Certainly, we ought not allow our minds carelessly to be filled with literature that is dangerous to our souls. But I would have you note that that which is herein specifically forbidden in Proverbs 19.17 is not, I'm sorry, Proverbs 19.27 is not a reading but clearly a hearing of a particular kind of instruction. It does not say, cease, my son, to read 
the instruction, though we may certainly imply that we are not to read that which is detrimental to our souls. But here it is clearly said, cease, my son, to hear the instruction. And I submit to you that although words on a printed page have the power to influence certain learned people, it is far more the case that the words spoken by an eloquent teacher or minister have the power to influence the masses. All kinds of people are affected by eloquent preachers and ministers and teachers. All kinds of people from every walk of life. I would also note that the command to cease from hearing the kind of teacher that is in view in the next phrase applies certainly to private situations. Again, we cannot exclude this as having no relationship or no bearing upon teaching that is privately given, given to others that may be damaging to their souls. But I would also have you understand that if in private certain teaching can be damaging to the soul of one, how much more the public preaching and teaching of that same teaching that is damaging to the soul in private will be to many souls in public. This is why the Lord cautions us in Exodus 23, 2. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Don't follow the crowd. When the crowd is together, it is very difficult to stand up against the crowd. It is hard to swim against the stream. So the Lord says, don't place yourself in a situation in a public situation where you hear teachers that will cause you to err from the words of knowledge. Not only are we, I think, more likely to be deceived in that kind of a situation, a public situation, because of the people that are present, but I believe that the opportunity to offend many is more true in a public situation where we, by our example in listening to unfaithful ministers and teachers, can lead others astray. And that as well becomes a very important reason to avoid the public situation where we hear instruction which causes us to err from the words of knowledge. The Lord himself made it very clear to his disciples that they were to be ever so careful as to what they heard. In Mark 4.24, he says, take heed what you hear. Take heed what you hear, what you listen to. Now, he wasn't, certainly he was talking about music and and uh, th uh, private conversations and that type of thing, but he was specifically talking about in a formal context, take heed what you hear in those situations. Take heed. Be careful. Don't place yourself in situations where you will hear in a formal setting what is an error. For Jesus says in Matthew 16, 6, that the scribes and the Pharisees, their teaching is leaven. Their false teaching is like leaven. And you will be leavened if you hear it, if you listen to it, if you give attention to what is being said. You will be leavened by that. You cannot sit, dear ones, and hear false teaching without having one of two responses. Either you grow increasingly angry and eventually leave. Or you begin to tolerate it and it begins to leaven your own soul. One of two responses if you subject yourself to it, but neither one of them are the right response. 
that we should have. We shouldn't place ourselves in that situation at all. The third subpoint from our text is this the teachers of error, according to Solomon, are not to be heard. Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causeth to err from the words of knowledge. Specifically, those who lead others to err from the sound words of Scripture and from the form of sound words that are found in faithful subordinate standards are not to be heard or countenanced in their official capacity as ministers. You see, this is the same problem that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah addressed with regard to the, to the false teachers that lived in their time. For they said, likewise, these false prophets caused the people to err to the people's own destruction, to their own destruction, hearing this false teaching day in and day out. And not only to us as parents, but what does it do to our children? To subject our children to teaching we believe and know to be contrary to the word of God. See, the same warning is issued to us through the Lord Jesus. Beware of false prophets in Matthew 7.15. Beware of false prophets. He warns us. He doesn't warn us in order that we might attend uh, and countenance their ministries. He warns us in order that we might avoid them and withdraw from them. For in our attendance, we in effect lift up the arms of those who are false teachers by being present, by consenting to be present, even occasionally. What are Christians, dear ones, commanded by God to do when it comes to teachers or ministers who scandalously depart from the form of sound words? Are Christians to fellowship with them in their public meetings or to receive the ordinances from them? Is that what Christians are to do according to God's word? Listen to the words of the prophets, to the words of Christ and the words of the apostles. In Jeremiah chapter 15, we find the words of the inspired prophet. <clears throat> Jeremiah 15, verse 17. Jeremiah says, I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand. For thou hast filled me with indignation. We're not to sit in the seat of scorners. We're not to sit in the assembly of mockers, of those who mock or deny the truth of the Lord. We're not to associate in their corporate worship before, because we, by so doing, become partakers of their sins. Furthermore, in that same chapter, Jeremiah 15, verse 19, we find these words of the Lord speaking of the people of Israel, speaking of the prophets, of the priests. Was Jeremiah to go to them and to sit in their assemblies when they had departed from the truth? The Lord says to Jeremiah, let them return unto thee, but return not thou unto them. Don't go in their assemblies. Don't return unto them. If it means being separate, you be separate. Let them come unto you because you have the truth. Don't compromise the truth. In Matthew fifteen fourteen, the words of our Lord Jesus 
With regard to the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, with those who promoted false teaching in the time of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ commands his disciples, let them alone. That literally means separate from them. It's the same word that is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for divorce. Leave them. Divorce them. Remove yourself and withdraw from them who teach what is false. And we can no more do so on an occasional basis than we can on a regular basis, as we shall soon see. And I would offer to you the words of the Apostle as well in Romans 16, verse 17. Romans 16, 17, where the Apostle Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. Avoid them. Those are to be marked who teach contrary to the truth which you have received. You're not to occasionally visit their churches. You're not to occasionally sit under their preaching. You're to avoid them. You're to withdraw from them. The instruction that causeth to err from the words of knowledge, dear ones, may not necessarily be a damnable heresy that directly attacks the foundation of the faith, such as the denial of the Trinity or denial of salvation by grace through faith alone in the work of Christ. Those churches may not deny these cardinal and foundational truths. Rather, the instruction which causes it to err in many of these churches may be the maintaining and professing of error by that church or by its ministers, which leads Christians from the doctrine, worship, government, and discipline which God has handed down to them from their faithful ancestors in the form of their creeds and confessions. Faithful summaries of the word of God in the form of sound words. And from these, the apostles' words speak just as clearly. Avoid them. Withdraw from them. Listen to the words of the godly and learned Samuel Rutherford in this regard. Listen to what Mr. Rutherford says. You'll need to pay close attention to the point that's being made here. I think it will leap out at you, but, but oftentimes this is a little uh, kind of an extended quote, so pay close attention so that you don't miss this uh, point that he's making. Rutherford says, But the Holy Ghost giveth the title due to false teachers to such as err not in fundamentals. Ergo, that is therefore, the assumption is made good by Titus chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. You can look that up subsequently. You might want to make a note right now. The apostle willeth them to be rebuked as not sound in the faith, as those that turn others from the truth and giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men, to fables and needless genealogies, and vain janglings and strivings about the law that were unprofitable and vain. Now, these questions about genealogies and the law, opinions on either sides being vain and unprofitable and not edifying in the faith, listen, could not be fundamental errors of themselves and inconsistent with saving grace and salvation. But they are hay and stubble, builded upon the foundation. Then, Rutherford continues, then to preach fables and endless genealogies, which are not fundamental errors, are yet another doctrine than the apostles taught. And those that so teach are to be charged to teach no such thing, 
And so under two or three witnesses, if they willfully continue therein to be accused and censured, yea, and we are to avoid them and not to receive them in our houses, nor bid them Godspeed. And so non-fundamentals as questions of genealogies come in under the name of teaching uncouth doctrine or unsound doctrine. Rutherford concludes by saying, Now sure questions of genealogies are but the hay and stubble that are builded on the foundation, which suffer burning when the teacher holding the foundation of Christ shall be saved. The foundation is secure. These who are teaching these genealogies the foundation was secure. But they were building upon the foundation by their teaching, their, their error, wood, hay, and stubble. And Paul says they should, be, they should be censured if they refuse to repent and stop doing so. And in such a case, if they don't, then they're to be avoided and withdrawn from. They're not to be countenanced nor heard. And before we move on to our second main point, let me make this comment. Erring from the words of knowledge, dear ones, is the chief means by which division is brought into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and by which true biblical unity in the visible church has been destroyed. Introducing false doctrine, corrupt worship, the wrong form of church government, this is the way that division has been brought into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If a backsliding from the truth occurs within a church in a small minority who remained faithful to the truth, handed down to them from their forefathers and ultimately from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, should separate from the majority of the backsliders who is responsible for the division. It's the majority. Who was responsible in Numbers chapter 13 for the division that was brought into the nation of Israel when the ten gave the evil report and the two stood for the right and the good report? Who brought division? Was it the minority? Or the majority. You see, those who depart from the truth are the schismatics and those who divide the body. Those, no matter how few they may be, who cling to the truth or return to the truth are simply being faithful. They're not the separatists. And I would submit to you, dear ones, if the reason for the separation that exists in such a situation is biblically warranted between the majority and the minority, if it's biblically warranted, how can the minority subsequently and occasionally worship together with the majority? If it was due grounds, if it was warrantable and justifiable to separate from them, permanently to, to establish a different church from that one. Then I ask, how can they return to that same church and worship occasionally with that church? If they can regularly worship together, I should say, if they can occasionally worship together, then why can't they regularly worship together? And if they can worship, regularly worship together, why ought they not to be united as one church? And so if there is just grounds to be separated, then there is just grounds not to occasionally worship with that church or to countenance the ministers of that church. And this holds true, dear ones, for all churches and ministers from whom we are separated due to their sinful terms of communion. 
all those churches that we have judged hold to sinful terms of communion contrary to the confessional standards to the directory for public worship to the form of presbyterial church government to our covenants which we believe to be agreeable to the word of God we cannot occasionally join with their worship with these people listen to this now I found this exceedingly interesting listen to the words of the Westminster divines in their argument to the independence at that particular day Listen to how the, the Presbyterians in the Westminster Assembly dealt with the independence. These Presbyterian divines in the Westminster Assembly said, if they, that is the independents, may occasionally exercise these acts of communion with us, that is worshiping with us occasionally, once or a second or a third time without sin, we know no reason why it may not be ordinary without sin too. And then separation would have been needless. To separate from those churches ordinarily and visibly with whom occasionally you may join without sin seemeth to be a most unjust separation. Our second main point the history, historical testimony against occasional hearing. I simply have two brief quotes to read for you. The first one, John Brown of Wamfrey, was minister of the Church of Scotland, was a student of Samuel Rutherford and faithful protester against violations of the Solemn League and Covenant, and who for his faithful stand was exiled from Scotland and never allowed to enter into his homeland again, but died in exile in Holland. In writing against the indulgences offered by Charles II, Brown writes to his brothers and sisters in Scotland the following. He says, here in Romans 16:17, which verse we read earlier about those who cause division contrary to the truth which you have received to avoid them. Here in Romans 16:17 is a clear warrant for avoiding such as teach things contrary to the doctrine which hath been already received and learned out of the word and do thereby cause divisions and offenses. By all these passages, and he mentions quite a few passages within this a particular section of his book, An Apologetical Relation. But he says, by all these passages, it is clear that the ministry of false and corrupt teachers should not be attended. The second quote is from James Rennick, minister of the Church of Scotland and martyr for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the covenanted reformation in Scotland. Mr. Rennick says, we judge we have sufficient ground to withdraw from all these ministers who pervert and corrupt their ministry by preaching and maintaining errors either in doctrine, worship, discipline, or government contrary to the scriptures and our confessions and principles of our covenanted reformation. It's from his informatory vindication. The third and final main point the sermon this Lord's Day is the practical testimony against occasional hearing. I have for you four subpoints. First of all, occasional hearing subverts biblical truth. When I occasionally attend a church that publicly promotes error contrary to the supreme standard of God's own holy word, and contrary to faithful subordinate standards like that of the Westminster Confession of Faith, or contrary to faithful covenants like that of the National Covenant or the Solemn League and Covenant, I necessarily encourage the promotion of that particular error that is embraced by that church by my attendance. And I necessarily undermine the truth that unfaithful 
that that unfaithful church has denied. If I encourage, dear ones, the building up of what I profess ought to be destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. The words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 18, addressing the rebuilding of the ceremonial law. He says, For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. And if we lift up the arms of those who promote error by corporately attending to the ministry of those churches, that we know and believe upon scriptural and confessional grounds have departed from the truth, we lift up the arms. We rebuild those walls that we are seeking to tear down and we make ourselves transgressors. For think about it, dear ones, if all Christians rightly performed their duty and avoided all unfaithful ministers in their official administrations, error would certainly decrease, while truth would certainly increase amongst the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be going in the way of further establishing the truth rather than diminishing the truth. For toleration allows error of every kind into our assemblies. The second sub-point in practical testimony against occasional hearing is that occasional hearing destroys biblical unity and biblical love. Biblical unity and biblical love, dear ones, are not promoted by occasional hearing. For biblical unity is always founded upon the truth and not in a compromise of the truth. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Amos asked in chapter 3, verse 3. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 16. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. That's how unity is achieved, by walking according to the same rule, by practicing the same rule that we have attained to in our confessional standards, which we believe, again, to be agreeable to the Word of God. And dear ones, biblical love is evidenced and promoted in the truth, not in error. Not by countenancing error or a corrupt ministry or an unfaithful minister. That's not how we show our love for the brethren. 1 Corinthians 13.6 says, Charity rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. You want to see love in, in action? It rejoices in what is true. It promotes truth. It compromises not truth. And Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. How can we promote biblical love when we are breaking God's commandments? By tolerating and countenancing that which we should avoid. And withdraw ourselves from. Actually, I would submit to you the most loving thing we can do for brethren who walk disorderly and not according to the tradition of the apostles. The most loving thing we can do is to bear witness against their defection in love. To bear witness against their backsliding. They're falling away from the truth, weeping, pleading with them to return to the truth. Crying out to God to give to them a heart for him and being restored to the truth. And by not worshiping with them, but explaining why we cannot worship with them. Not being harsh. Not coming down on them, but in love explaining to them, I love you as a brother or a sister in Christ, but I cannot do this. And this is why. Is that not far more loving 
to simple, then to simply countenance and attend the services where these brothers and sisters worship. An occasional hearing actually, dear ones, confirms ministers and Christians who are in those unfaithful churches in their error. Do you want to bring them to the truth or do you want them to remain in their error? Well, visit them in their churches. Say nothing about their errors while you're there and you will confirm them in their error. But lovingly correct, lovingly point out to them where they have gone astray and how they have fallen from the right path of truth and righteousness and pray for the Spirit of God to work in their lives and you will bring them to the truth. That's not putting your light under a bushel. That's letting it stand right on the end of the table for all to see. That's biblical love for the brethren. Thirdly, occasional hearing violates biblical covenants as well. If we occasionally worship in churches which do not own their own obligation to uphold faithful covenants, such as the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant, covenants which are agreeable to the Word of God and covenants which were sworn on behalf of them by their forefathers, we therefore encourage their continued covenant breaking. And dear ones, we become covenant breakers with them. We as well are commanded, we are obligated in our solemn covenant to uproot all false teaching and error and heresy and corrupt worship. But when we attend churches that promote it, we deny the covenants that we have been bound by and that we own. We're guilty of covenant breaking against our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Fourthly, occasional hearing sets a stumbling block before others. And I've alluded to this already. Occasional hearing, dear ones, encourages ministers and members who regularly attend unfaithful churches to continue in their sin and error. We should be testifying to our brethren that they have fallen from the path of truth rather than joining them in their wayward path from the truth. And I would say we set an enormous stumbling block. We who care for our children, we set an enormous stumbling block before our own children. You want your children to be confused about what is right and wrong, what is truth and what is error. You want them to be totally confused. Continue to attend churches that you have taught your children hold errors and they will scratch their head as they should and say, how can we do this? How can we continue to do so? And eventually, if you continue to do so, you will erode in their little lives a love for the truth. A desire to follow faithfully, without compromise, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will set a stumbling block before them, of which the Lord Jesus Christ says in Luke 17, that it were better for a millstone to be hung around a person's neck than to caught and to be thrown into the midst of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Consider the seriousness of putting stumbling blocks like this before your children. John Brown, in closing, John Brown left this dying testimony to his children. I think it's one worth taking as our own, reflecting upon as well. He said to his children, adhere constantly cordially and honestly to the covenanted principles of the Church of Scotland and to that testimony which hath been lifted up for them. I fear a generation is rising up which will endeavor silently to let these matters slip 
as if they were ashamed to hold them fast or even to speak of them. May the Lord forbid that any of you should ever enter into this confederacy against Jesus Christ and his cause. This from a dying father and minister and a witness for Christ. And he signed his name, John Brown. Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causeth to err from the words of knowledge. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Thou hast instructed us according to the words of knowledge this day. Thou hast opened Thy word to us and given us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. And Father, though we have by our conviction and by our practice erred many times in the past, God, thou hast been gracious and merciful to us in bringing us to an accurate knowledge and understanding of these truths. And Father, we would offer to thee our praise and our thanksgiving that thou hast been to us so merciful. And Lord, we would preserve these truths. We would not see the next generation fall from the covenanted reformation. But Father, we would see this as the foundation laid. And that, Father, our children would far surpass us in faithfulness. And take the covenanted reformation to the ends of the earth. Take the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the thrones and dominions places of, of power and authority in every nation and that each nation would covenant to be the Lord's, to be married to Christ. Oh, Father, we long for this day. We long to see righteousness and truth established throughout the world and that thy church would be one in doctrine, worship, government and discipline. We long to see the Lord's name one in all of the earth. And Father, we pray that all division, all disunity, all disharmony, all of these matters would be removed and that unity would be established upon the foundation of the truth. And until such a time, we pray that thou would help us to be faithful to thee, to promote the covenanted reformation by not compromising it in attending, countenancing unfaithful ministers and churches. But let us weep for them. Let us pray for them. Let us, Father, continue to pray until, Father, thou dost hear and answer our prayers. For Jesus' sake. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. 
You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.